Seth is my assistant up here this morning. You like his shoes, by the way? <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you. I don't know what I'm going to do to you. So, so this is, um, let me get the rest of my notes here. A story in cloth is um, something that was developed by Southern Baptist missionaries, as a matter of fact. Bob Calvert, back in the late 1900s, 1996, he started working on this. Bob was, uh, he's retired now, a missionary to the Maasai people there in Africa. And he needed a way to share the gospel with them, but they had no context. They had no basis of understanding. Uh, there's a picture of it up on the board, too. Um, and so he developed this and took four years to put together all the pictures, get some folks to help him with the production of it and kind of put it all together. Um, these 42 different frames or different chapters start actually before creation, all right? Start before God said, let there be light, but then moves through from creation all the way to Christ, all the way to the ascension. And the very first week that Bob used to this with the Maasai, over 400 of them came to faith. And it was amazing to see God work and move through this technique of sharing the gospel with people, but not starting at the cross, not even starting at sin, but going all the way back to creation. And every single chapter, you can, you can go have a seat now. Thank you. You did a good job, bro. Good job. Thank you. Yes. So that was pretty anemic, but don't take it personal, Seth, okay? All right. Every single chapter is a separate discussion. It's a separate presentation, okay? So this, this is not something that happens all in one sitting. It happens over, over a span of time. And every single chapter, every unit in that begins with this same introduction that you see on the screen now. These words are what every segment of that says. There is one God, and he loves us very much, but there is a problem in our lives. We have rebelliously disobeyed his commandments, and so we are separated from God. This is the story of what the Bible teaches us that God has done to bring us back to him. That introduces every segment of the story in cloth. There is a God. He loves us. And we have rebelled against him. And this is the story of what he has done to bring us back to him. So, no one can understand the good news of Jesus until they understand that they need the good news of Jesus. I'm going to say that again because that's the whole point of Acts 17. No one can understand the good news of Jesus until they understand that they need it. That they need. This was true in Paul's day. It was true for the Messiah. And at the risk of being offensive to some, we have more in common with the Messiah, at least our culture does, than many would want to admit. Because we have no context in our culture any longer for the vast majority of people living here to understand what the cross is, who Jesus is, and why it matters. 
We live in a, we are not in the Bible, but we're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. Okay? And many of the people around us don't even know what sin is. They don't know what righteousness means. They have no context to grasp the word holy. And so in some ways we're very similar to that. Athens was the hub of a pluralistic society that said every faith is valid. All roads lead to the same place. As long as you're sincere in what you believe, you'll be okay. That was Paul's day in Athens. And and it's our day today. Now, there were some in Paul's day, as we've seen in Acts 17, like the Jews in the synagogue. He could go into that religious setting and begin with the law and the prophets and bring them to Christ. At least introduce them to Jesus as the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets. But in the Areopagus, there in the cultural, philosophical, artistic center of Athens, that same message wouldn't work. Because they had no biblical worldview. They had no biblical context to even understand the language of the Bible. And that's the day we live in today. That's true for so many people around us. Yes, even here in Roxborough. Even here in our community. A biblical worldview is largely absent from our culture today. So the understanding of basic reality has been digitized and changed as we want to. So our reality is fluid. It can be whatever we want it to be. Our identity is fluid. It can be whatever we want to be. Our morality is fluid. Human history even can be interpreted however you want to interpret it based on your cultural setting, based on your worldview. Yes, it seems we can change the past. And so we look at that. We look at human destiny. Why am I here and where am I going? And in Paul's day, they had so many different views of that. And as a believer, what can we say about this, right? We say we are disciples of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and life. But many people around us say, my way is as good as yours. And truth, what the heck is that? And life, well, I don't even know about life. I don't know where it starts. I don't know what it means. And I don't know where it's going. So how do we speak into that? Well, I believe Acts 17 helps us with that answer. It's not the final answer, but it helps us with a perspective that I fear often we need. Okay? And so we're going to look at that. There's a, there's a comparison here in Acts 17 and a collision of worldviews. So we've been talking. Well, let's go back several weeks. How do we move someone from way over here, unreached, no context for biblical understanding, no context for Jesus and sin and righteousness and all these words that we throw around? How do we move them closer To what God intends for them, his purpose and his plan. How do we move them closer to the cross and to Jesus? To becoming a disciple and becoming a multiplying disciple. How do we do that? And today I want us to think about how do we do that in a context where so many around us are not speaking the same language. They didn't didn't grow up 
with a biblical worldview. Well, I'll speak more about that in just a minute. Let's look at the text. Follow along with me in Acts 17. I'll start reading there in verse 16. Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as, within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers who conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be preaching foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange thing to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Verse 21 is a description of any Starbucks, Caribou Coffee, Trisha's. Golden Corral. It's a description of any place you want to go where people hang out in our culture. Well, let's just talk about something new. The latest movie, the latest song, the latest political ad. Let's just, just wanting to know something new. It's, it's a timeless description. And so Paul, as he's in this context, troubled in his spirit, Provoked by what he sees around him in a, in a city full of idols. And I'll say now something that I'll say at the end. We will be able to say and speak into our culture the way Paul does when we see and feel the way Paul does. He's broken hearted. And he's stirred to action. By what he sees around him. In this culture. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. 
But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we have here Paul's address in the Areopagus. And I said when we first started this, it takes about two minutes to read that. But we should not think that this is the transcript of what went, took place there. Most scholars would say that those addresses in the Areopagus could take hours. Long, long discussions and dialogues back and forth. I believe this is just an outline, if you will, of what Paul said. And when it says at the end of the passage that some of the people followed him and heard about this from him, I think that we will hear about this from you. I think that took time. That was relational building, and he's speaking into their lives. I don't think it's a, a one-minute kind of a thing. So with that context and understanding, what can we learn from, from Paul's method here? What can we learn about Paul? And some, by the way, you can read in some commentators about this, that this is not a gospel presentation at all. It's just bad news. Paul never mentions Jesus, and he never mentions the cross, and, he, and all he does is talk about ultimate judgment. And sooner or later, it's got to go there, right? I mean, sooner or later, that's, that's... But again, until we know we're lost, we don't know we need to be saved. And until we have a context for understanding the good news, we're satisfied with whatever news we've got. And so that's where... These people were, as Paul addressed them on this day. So as we begin, I, I entitled the sermon just our introduction to God. This is Paul's introduction to the God of the Bible. And it begins with a point of contact. I see that you are very religious. The storying cloth begins in the spiritual world. The storying cloth begins even before God said, let there be light. So I think even there, there's a connection point with this spiritual reality that innate, innate in many of us is this understanding there's more to me than what I see in the mirror. And Paul makes this just beautiful, gracious connection point with the people. He could have picked up his scroll and started swinging it. And instead he makes a kind, compassionate connection point with the people around him who spiritually had nothing in common with him. And I love that picture of, of just being gracious and kind yet clear. So he says, let me introduce you to the God who is the creator of everything, who made the world and everything in it. Now remember, in the synagogue, in the Sunday school class, he can go back to the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And bring the Jews to that place where they see Christ as the promised Messiah. He can't do that in the Areopagus. Okay? He can't do that. We can't start with the Roman road with many people around us. They don't even know what a Roman road is. It's a city in Paris, in someplace over there, a city in Italy. So Paul gives us this picture of what it means to speak into an unbiblical, post-biblical, post-modern kind of setting and bring people to some truth about who God is. The Stoics believed if there is a God... That he could not have existed before anything else existed. And they feel like he's removed. So he really didn't create, some Stoics said. Others said, well, he created the universe, but he's, if he is God, he doesn't need our praise. He's not the least bit concerned about us. 
Epicureans, on the other hand, believe that nothing came in, nothing can come into existence from nothing. So they really didn't believe the universe even had a beginning and that God is somehow removed from everything. He's not involved. And Paul speaks to this on both ends regarding the Stoics. He says, no, God is distinct from creation. He made it, but he is not removed from it. Thank you, Matthew, for mentioning that. He is transcendent, but he is imminent. So Paul goes all the way back to the beginning. And here's the thing about Christianity, church. Christianity is about revelation. God revealing himself. It's not about men coming together and coming up with a bunch of ideas. And so Paul goes back to this picture of revelation. A spiritual connection place for all of humanity. We all come from one man, Adam. Which is where we can bridge in the New Testament to the second Adam in Christ. And we can agree, yes, God by his general grace is the father of all humanity. But it is saving grace that adopts us and brings us into his spiritual family as our father. We can bridge that. We can speak into that. Here's the reality of our culture today, and I believe it's the reality even in a place like Roxborough, here in the center of a Bible Belt. In our, in our country today, our population, the U.S. population, is about 332 million. According to the statistics I read this week, 6% of that population is under 5 years of age. 22% of that population is between 6 and 18 years of age. And 55% of that population is from 19 to 64 If my math is right, 83% of our population in the United States is under 65. Here's the connection point. Many, if not most, of those people educated in the American educational system have been taught to believe that our existence is the sum total of matter plus time plus chance. We are accidents of evolution. And if we are accidents of evolution, with no purposeful beginning, no clear purpose now, and no clear destination and reason for living, then why is it that we sit and look at the TV and wonder why the next young person has taken up a gun and a knife and started mowing down his neighborhood? Why is it that we wonder why our young people don't have any purpose and are picking up firearms and killing? Do we not understand that if we don't go past Genesis 3, back all the way to Genesis 1, and bring into people's lives the good news that they are created in God's image with love and purpose and intent, with value, everything that every human being that breathes is given this. We have to go back past Genesis 3 to Genesis 1. In this post-biblical culture. We'll get to Genesis 3. We must get to the rebellion. But rebel against what? Rebel against who? And why would it even matter? So a generation ago, we could begin a gospel conversation, I believe, with God is holy, you're a sinner. If you died today, would you go to heaven? And in some contexts, that's still effective. But I don't think in most cases it is. At least not with many. 
So with many in our culture and many in our community, we have to go back past Genesis 3 to Genesis 1. You are, you are created by a loving God in His image. And His plans and purposes for you are good. And then we can work our way to Genesis 3. And then we can take them to the cross. And we can say all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Let me introduce you to the God who is the creator. Then he says, let me introduce you to the God who is the Lord of heaven and earth. This is radical in Paul's day. There in the pantheon of the gods, there in the Areopagus, there in Greece and Athens. The God who made the world and everything in it, he says, is the Lord of heaven and earth. In their day, they had a God of the ocean, a God of the mountain, a God of sex, a God of wine, a God of family, a God of fathers, a God of warriors, a God of soldiers. There was a whole pantheon of gods. And and Paul says, no, the God who created everything that is, is the Lord of everything that is. He's sovereign over all of that. The Greek gods had different domains and responsibilities. And Paul would say, no, he's the Lord of all. He's the owner and master. He's the one that's in charge. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, the Lord would say in Isaiah 66. Psalm 24. Did you see? I mean, the psalm I read a few minutes ago. But go back and look at that. We read that so that we could have this context to bridge over to. In Psalm 104, the Greeks would say that Poseidon is the god of the oceans. And, and, and here the word of God says, here's the sea great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things great and small. Lord, manifold are your works. They're there because, the, as the psalmist says, you placed them there. The Leviathan you formed plays in the ocean that you made. So here's this picture of God being Lord of all. He says, let me introduce you to him. Then he says, let me introduce you to this God who is transcendent. He does not live, he says in verse 24, in temples that are made by man. He is distinct from the universe, Paul says. He made us. He is different from us. And he speaks into that reality. They believe God is in everything. And indeed, everything in some way is God. And Paul says, no, he's transcendent. He's above and beyond all of that. I love what the old commentator Matthew Henry said about this verse, about that he does not live in temples made by hand. Matthew Henry said, God is not invited to any temple men can build for him, nor confined to any temple. A temple never brings him nearer to us, nor keeps him longer among us. A temple is convenient for us to come together to worship God, but God needs not any place of rest or residence nor the magnificence and splendor of any structure to add to the glory of his appearance. I love that. Paul said, let me introduce you to this God that you say is unknown. He's transcendent. He's the creator. He's Lord of heaven and earth. And he says then, in verse 25, he is self-sufficient. He needs nothing from us, but he is kind and benevolent and gives to us. He's not served by human hands, Paul says, as as though he needed anything. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He gives us everything we need, Paul says. He needs nothing from us. That's a radical message in a self-sufficient culture. That's a radical message. That's why even this morning, as we read Psalm 104, we're reminded, Lord, you give drink 
to the fields of the beast. The wild donkeys have their thirst quenched because you quench it. The birds have a place to live because you give them the trees to live in. From your abode, Lord, you water the mountains. You bring forth the fruit of the land. You cause grass to grow for the cows. You cause the cows to be provided for our food. You grow plants so we can have something to eat. You give wine to gladden the heart, bread to strengthen men. God, it comes from you. Thank you. Thank you. God is self-sufficient. He needs nothing from us. He gives everything to us. And then he goes on, let me introduce you to this God who is sovereign over all humanity and all history. Notice what he says. He made, man, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having predetermined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. The commonality of humanity, the commonality of our point of origin, the commonality of God's sovereign plan and purpose in the place where every person lives and how long they live. It's an amazing statement that Paul makes here. I read something this week that was way above my head. It was uh, an abstract for a study that had been written by a paleoanthropological group out of one of the universities in England. Yeah, I had a hard time even learning to say that word, paleoanthropological. But the abstract, the introduction to their study, their study, by the way, was simply charting and laying out the process of human movement. And they came to the conclusion that mankind had one origin, and from that origin moved throughout all the globe to the habitable places where we could live. They came to that conclusion. And their abstract said, Genetic and paleoanthropological evidence is in accord that today's human population is the result of a great demographic and geographic expansion which began approximately 45,000 to 60,000 years ago in Africa and rapidly resulted in human occupation of almost all of the Earth's habitable regions. That's how they introduced their study. Thabiti Anabowile, a pastor that I just clearly respect and love, summarized this this way. He said, 2,000 years ago, before the advent of modern science, a so-called, quote, pre-scientific, unquote, apostle, wrote a profound sentence, which itself is a paraphrase of Genesis, about human origins, that, quote, scientific man is only now accepting and documenting. Thabiti said, we may come to know great things by science, but many of them we can know much quicker by revelation. Amen. Amen. Paul said, we all have one father, one brother, one man from every nation. So here's an application and consideration of that point, And I want you to think about it, church, okay? Every encounter we have with every person that we encounter, every person we see on the news is in some way our relative. Regardless of color, regardless of language, regardless of politics, they are our brother or sister in some way. Every nation, every tribe, every language, every group, every family exists by the single sovereign plan of God. Every human being lives someplace for some period of time because God has ordained it. 
which blew my mind this morning early as I'm thinking, God, why here and why now for me? Why not in Afghanistan? Why not in Ukraine? Why here? Why now? Every person is here and now because of God's predetermined purposes and governing. So every encounter, I believe, every conversation, I believe, is in one sense a divine encounter. Every one of those conversations is in some sense a divine encounter. It is a divine appointment. God help us not to blow it. Help us not to blow it. Paul says, let me introduce you to this God. He is transcendent. He is independent. But he is not disengaged. Okay? Unlike the Stoics God, who just kind of winds things up and lets it go. Unlike the Epicurean God, who may be there and may not. I'm not worried about it. I'm just going to live it out. Paul says, no. He is relational, and he wants mankind to know and worship him. Look at what he says in verse 29. Being then God's offspring. Excuse me. Back up to 27. He said that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, and we are indeed his offspring. This is, this is spirit-inspired genius on the part of Paul. The Holy Spirit working in him and saying, Paul, sing their lyrics for just a second. Quote their poets to them. They don't understand the Bible, Paul, but they'll understand Billboard Top 100. Paul, they don't understand what you're talking about if you go straight to the cross. But take them to their broken hearts. Take them to their broken relationships. Take them to their hungover mornings while they can't figure out why their life is just repeat. And there start and bring them to Jesus. I believe that's what Paul does here in just this amazing way. Paul uses their poets and their artists and their song lyrics. I spent some time this week doing some research on it. I've had a desire for years um, to, to do a, like a podcast. And it's not original to me. They, they, they've been done before. But just taking songs, country, western, pop, hip-hop, rock, and just bringing them back to the Bible. Just talking about their lyrics. Because I just love reading and, and listening to some of these lyrics and thinking, now how can, how can that... How can we bring them to Jesus from this? Just an interesting concept. But I was studying Billboard's top 100 for the last 50 years, and they had done some research at Billboard and had come up with all of the top themes. This is not rocket science, okay? I mean, just, you don't, you don't have to be Rembrandt or Mozart to know what people's hearts are saying, okay? Number one on this Billboard list of themes was heartbreak, breakups. All right? Oh, she left me, and I'm going to die. That theme. Second was desire. Desire for sex, desire for relationships, desire for love. We have in us this innate need to feel wanted, wanted by a lover, wanted by our parents, wanted by our husbands, wanted by our wives or our kids. We have a desire to be in these relationships. We also have a fear that we'll lose them. So loss is a major theme. 
death, disruption, breakups, whatever. And then there's a deep desire for inspiration, motivation, success. To be more than I am. Inspirational songs that just, you know, put me on the same plane as Rocky running up the steps, drinking raw eggs and just beating the side of meat. Man. In some ways, all of us want to identify with being more than we are. And we sing about that. We write about that. We also sing and write about our pain. About the hurt. And most songs that are successful, are going to sing about these things. Most movies are going to portray them. Most books are going to write about them. So Paul goes there with these poets, goes there with this understanding, because he understood that Scripture reveals these needs. If we're versed in the Bible, we're going to recognize there's a connection point between what the culture sings about and wants. And we're going to see that Jesus is the only one that can heal that broken heart. And he's the only one that can meet that desire. And he's the only one that can bring you to that level of accomplishment that God intends for you. So Paul does that here. And he brings them to this pres- into the presence of God, introduces God to them. But he also suggests to them and tells them very clearly, you need to understand something. You have messed up. He says... Being God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. I love that theme, the art and imagination of man. Art and imagination are such gifts from God, and they are such idol factories as well. And he goes there. He says, you've come up with all these images. You've come up with all these idols. You've come up with all these statues. And he says there in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So this time of introduction moves into a time of instruction from Paul in these verses. One of those first points of instruction is God is unique and your idolatry is sinful. Your idolatry is rebellion against God. And don't think that this transcendent, mighty God that's the creator of all that is can be put into a statue by your art or imagination. Your gold and your silver and these other things, your stone images. God in the past has overlooked this, but now the patience of God has run out and he commands you to repent. What are they repenting of? Idolatry. Idolatry. And our streets may not be lined with the statues, but our lives are just just covered with the ruins of lives who have made anything and everything more important than God. Anything and everything more valuable to Him. And, and we've, we've got to communicate that to the people around us. That the songs we sing and the lyrics and the videos that we watch... The images that we portray for ourselves on Facebook or see from others on TikTok, that's not God's goal for us. That's not God's best for us. And God has been kind and gracious to overlook those in the sense of not just ignoring them and pretending that they're not there. But now the time has come in God's sovereign timetable that the judge has come. And he has proved to be the judge Because of his righteous, sinless life, his substitutionary death, 
and the resurrection of the dead that proves he is the only judge. You say, Gerald, I don't see that in that text. I believe Paul goes right there in conversations that follow up as he does in conversations before and as he'll do in conversations that follow. This isn't the whole story here in Acts 17. But it is the jumping off point for Paul and for us in many of these conversations. And anytime we see people around us with the object of their time or their thought or their energy or their life taking precedent above God, in love, our hearts ought to be just stirred. And our care and and concern for the glory of God then causes us to speak into that life and say, God has more for you. He created you. And He has more for you. And the righteous judgment is coming. It is coming. Remember what Paul said over in Romans chapter 1? Turn over there for just a second. I'm not going to take long here, but it's just good for us to be reminded of this. There in verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Greek. Then he goes on to talk about the wrath of God, starting in verse 18. God's wrath, he says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And how's that unrighteousness and ungodly manifested itself? Notice what he says. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature. They're clearly perceived, he says, since the creation of the world. So God's creation, His general revelation, is clear enough and extensive enough that every human being is accountable to God for that general revelation. But they have turned from that general revelation, Paul says. They're without excuse For he says in verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or thank him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise. They became fools. In verse 23 says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, he says in verse 25, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That creature can have four legs or two. And so this picture of of what it means and the wording that Paul uses there is interesting because he says people are searching or feeling their way toward God. James Boyce says in his commentary that this is the same word that Homer used in the Odyssey to describe Cyclops. After Odysseus had stabbed out his one big eye with a stake. And Odysseus and his men are in this cave They're in there because that's where the Cyclops has put them. But Odysseus blinds Cyclops so he can't see with his eye anymore. And and, and Cyclops is stumbling around, feeling his way for who he can grab and kill. That's the same word that Paul uses here to describe men dead in their sin and blind in their sin, trying to stumble around, groping around, finding their way. And it's like Paul saying, in our sin, we're as unseeing as the blinded cyclops. And we know God is there. We know that there's someone out there. There's something out there beyond us. But sin has blinded us to him. And we need his grace to open our eyes so that we can see him. And church, 
Paul used that concept to define his own conversion. That God opened his eyes so that he could see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then later on in the book of Acts, Paul says, that's not only my conversion story, that's my commission. God has called me to go and proclaim the gospel so that those blind eyes can be opened, that they can see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So that's where Paul takes them as he introduces them to God and gives them this gives them these instructions about this. So what's what's their response? Well, look at what it said. Some mocked him when he went to the resurrection. That's the message of the book of Acts. That's the message of the gospel, the resurrection. That God wrapped himself in human form, came and lived a sinless, perfect life so that rebellious sinners who would turn and trust in him, could be forgiven of their sins and the righteousness of that holy God given to them and the sinfulness, their sinful guilt laid upon him as he went to the cross. And that exchange of grace is the gospel. And that those who would trust in him are forgiven of their sins and given the life of Christ. And God raised him from the dead to prove that all of this is true. And that, as we saw in Revelation, one day he will return as the righteous, holy judge. And so that's the picture that Paul says. And some mocked the resurrection. Others said, hmm, that's interesting. I've got to go. I'll catch you next time. I'd like to hear more, but I don't have time right now. Oh, wait, that's my wife. i got to go. You know, i got an appointment. For whatever reason, some just said, no, we'll hear you later on this. But then some believed. And their names are given there. There's a, there's a couple of folks that believed, and then others were there. As I said at the beginning, we're going to never be able to really say what Paul says without seeing and feeling what Paul felt. This being troubled and broken over the lostness that's around us. And, and, and I heard a, a sermon this week that made this amazing connection to me. And I just, it, I don't even remember who the preacher was, but he said, we as God's people need to be students of CNN. But we also need to be students of Christ and be able to bridge those two. We need to be able to Read the New York Times and understand not only what's being said, but why it's being said. And then take that to the name that is above every other name. We're the bridge. We're the translator, if you will. We take MSNBC and understand what's being said, but more than that, why it's being said. What is the heart's cry behind that headline? And then how can the maker of heaven and earth answer it? That's our call. That's, that's the model that we have here. And years ago, maybe we could come to a place like Roxborough, and we could pull out our Roman road and start with all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is absolutely a valid place to start in some settings and in some conversations. 
And we start there at Romans 3.23, and then we go to 6.23, that the wages of that sin is death. And then we go to Romans 5.8, that God has demonstrated his love for us, even then, that while we're still sinners, Christ has died. And then we go to Romans 10 and say that everyone who confesses and believes will be saved. And then we, 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 go through, we can go through that Roman road, but before we ever get to Romans 3, we're going to have a parking lot full of people next Sunday who really don't know what sin is. And don't care a rip about the glory of God. Don't know what it means to fall short of it. But they know that their hearts are hurting. That they can't live up to what they see on Facebook. They know that whatever they tried didn't work in that last relationship. And that being hung over today is the same feeling they had yesterday when they were hung over. And nothing has changed. And they're going to want to come get candy. And they're going to want to come so their kids can have a good time. And if they go away and all they get is candy and a full belly, we have failed. We have failed. But I believe God has more for us than that. And I believe in this instruction we have a good model for how we can begin those conversations. Isn't it a beautiful day? I'm so thankful God made it. And I mean, beautiful, man, these leaves are going to be peak next weekend. Can you look? Do you see that? Man, isn't that amazing? You know, the God who made this made you. And he made me. Let me tell you the story of what he's done in my life. It, it's not rocket science. <laughs> it really isn't. And may God help me and all of us to, to be quick to step in and, 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 and give that truth to them. God is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the ruler of all history. You're here tonight or today because God has chosen for you to be here tonight, today. And one day he's going to judge us. It's been said that death levels the ground. For us all it does. But it also separates us. It also separates us. And as... And as Christians, as disciples of Christ, we need to be reminding people that it is short here and eternity is long. And the God who made us and created us has created a way and brought a way for us to be back in a right relationship with him. And it's in him that life is found. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you today for Paul's encounter with the philosophers of Athens. Father, I pray for this church family that tomorrow when we go back to our classrooms and we encounter the philosophers who are in the desk beside us, they may not look like a philosopher, but they are. Or Lord, that person that's at the gym on the treadmill beside us. Or those that are in line at Walmart. Father, just give us eyes to see them, not with eyes of flesh, but eyes of spiritual reality. That they are souls made in the image of God. And one day, Lord, they'll stand before you as we will. Father, help us to see like Paul saw. Ground us in your word, O God. So that we can be anchored there. Even as we seek to exegete and understand the culture around us. And help us, O Lord, have the compassion, the concern, the clarity to bridge that gap. And speak to people about the hope that we have in Christ. Father, I pray that in his name. Amen.